This week, doing archaeology amid civil war. We have to imagine an archaeology without fieldwork in the future for this country, and this could apply even to other countries. And parts of a human skull found in a hidden cave in Israel. Nobody actually knew that there is a cave there because the uh, entrance to the cave uh, collapsed thousands and thousands years ago. Plus, testing relativity with crazy precision. This is the Nature Podcast for the 29th of January 2015. I'm Jeff Mush. And I'm Kerry Smith. Years ago, during some construction work in northern Israel, a bulldozer scraped away some earth and revealed a tiny opening to a giant limestone cave. It's a huge cavern with a high ceiling and lots of statuesque orange-tinted stalactites. Amateur cavers soon explored the space, but they weren't the first to find Manok Cave alluring. Tens of thousands of years ago, humans were already occupying it. Now a team of archaeologists report one particularly good find, a battered 55,000-year-old piece of skull. It looks remarkably modern. In fact, it may belong to a group of humans who later colonised Europe and might even have interbred with Neanderthals. Anthropologist Israel Hershkovich from Tel Aviv University is one of the team. He tells Nature reporter Ewan Calloway about their first visit to the cave. Nobody actually knew that there is a cave there because the... uh entrance to the cave uh, collapsed thousands and thousands uh, years ago. We first entered to the, to the cave through this uh, small opening that was created by the, uh, the bulldozer, and the, the immediate survey of the cave told us that the cave was inhabited by prehistoric men for thousands and thousands of years. So it's an amazing, beautiful uh, prehistoric cave. Tell us about the skull you found. Okay, the skull is, 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 is very gracile. It's, uh, there is nothing on the skull that, is, that make it different from, uh, from modern skull. It is a rounded skull. It's very tip- rounded skull are very typical to modern uh, human skull. But on top of it, the skull, the skull still keep what you call several archaic traits, you know, old traits that can be found in much older uh, specimens. So it's a combination. So your team is arguing that you think this skull represents a wave of humans who migrated out of Africa some 60,000 years ago. This is the first evidence that showed that indeed there was a large wave of African migrants coming out of East Africa, crossing the Sahara Desert, crossing the Nubian Desert, coming up along the Mediterranean coast and inhabiting the uh, eastern Mediterranean uh, region, roughly 55,000 years ago. So it is really a key skull in understanding uh, modern human evolution. Are you saying that this skull represents the ancestors of the humans who went on to colonize Europe? Yes. The morphology and the shape of the skull clearly show that the Manot skull is very similar to the early Upper Paleolithic skull, which implies that the Manot people probably are the forefathers of many of the, what you call the early uh, Upper Paleolithic populations of Europe. Could the human who possessed this skull, could he or she have encountered Neanderthals? 
it's a possibility. I mean, I mean, I mean, what you have to remember, if you take Manot, the Manot cave, you, you, you can easily see that Manot cave is, is, is less than 50 kilometers from, from Kebara cave or from, 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 from Amud cave. And we know from the skeletal remains that the, the, the people who inhabited those caves, Kebara and Amud, were Neanderthals. They were living side by side for thousands and thousands of years. So imagine to yourself, here we actually hold a, a skull of a human being that could interbreed with uh, the Neanderthals. When humans and Neanderthals interbred, you had uh, hybrids. Is it possible that this skull could represent one such hybrid? Well, uh, well, first of all, it's a possibility. The problem is, is how you identify hybrid, how he would look like a hybrid of Neanderthals and modern humans, unless we will succeed in, in extracting enough DNA from the skull and do, do the genetic analysis, and this would give us the ultimate uh, answer to your question. Otherwise, we don't know. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you next. Is there any possibility that scientists that, that will be able to recover DNA from the skull to answer that question? Well, honestly, the chances are not great. I'm very sorry to disappoint you in this respect. The chances are not great. DNA material is not preserved in the southern Levant because of the climatic condition and so on. Your chances are much better if you go up to a, a, a much colder areas. But still, we don't have to, uh, to give up because, you know, technology is improving uh, all the time and we can work with less and less uh, uh, material. That was Israel Hershkovich talking to Ewan Calloway. And there's a high chance there'll be more skull hiding places, he says, because of Israel's geology. Most of Israel, 90% of Israel is limestone. So basically, uh, Israel is like, like a Swiss cheese with millions of holes. So there's a whole lot more to find out about the human conquest of the Middle East. Stressed out mice and a shake-up of some high school chemistry in the research highlights now with Noah Baker. White blood cells taken from stressed mice can boost mood in other mice. It's assumed that the nervous system mostly controls mood, but the rest of the body gets involved too. A group at the National Institutes of Health stressed mice out by putting them in social situations where they were of a lowly rank. Then they transferred some of their white blood cells, lymphocytes, to other mice with no white blood cells of their own. These mice ended up with lower stress levels and staved off inflammation. The find could help scientists make fast-acting antidepressants. The paper is in the Journal of Neuroscience. If you drop sodium into water, like your teacher might have done in chemistry class, the sodium can explode. The reaction gives off hydrogen and heat. Chemists believe that the heat ignites the hydrogen and causes the explosion. But that might be a schoolboy error. A team based in the Czech Republic watched the reaction with high-speed cameras and found that the metal is exploding too early for heat to be the cause. Instead, they think that each sodium atom at the surface loses an electron. The now positive ions then repel each other, causing the explosion. For more, check out Nature Chemistry. If you were around in the 1880s, you might well have been convinced that we lived in something called ether. 
it would be impossible to decide which of them moves or stands still with respect to the ether. But regard the ether, which can be the seat of the ether as well as the clocks are resting in the ether. Physicists thought that light waves travel through the ether like sound waves travel through air. In 1887, two physicists called Michelson and Morley put this to the test. They sent out two beams of light, one in line with the Earth's rotation and another one at right angles to it. Their thinking was that if there was ether around, the light would go at different speeds in these different directions. To their surprise, the speed of light was the same no matter how they oriented their experiment. Their finding went on to become one of the most famous negative results in scientific history. Known as Lorentz symmetry, the rule is also fundamental to Einstein's theory of special relativity, which says that the speed of light is constant. Done deal. The only thing is, even with robust laws like this, modern physics can't explain everything. Things like dark matter, for example, have led physicists to question even these most fundamental laws of nature. Tanad Prutavarasan is among those revamping the Michelson-Morley experiment with ever-increasing precision. In his experiment, he's replaced light with electrons. Lizzie Gibney spoke to him, starting by asking how he'd gone about dragging a 19th-century experiment into the 21st century. We used very mature technology with trapped atoms, in our case, a pair of calcium ions. People have been developing this kind of technology in the context of quantum information, quantum computing for the past 20 or 30 years. So we have a really good control over the behavior of this kind of ions. And that allows us to basically do whatever we want to them. And so in this experiment, you're not testing the speed of light, but what about the electrons are we, are we trying to establish? For electrons, the Lorentz symmetry says that no matter what direction these tiny particles uh, traveling, the, the total kinetic energy shouldn't depend on which direction it's moving. So, for example, if the electron is moving towards the left or to upwards, then you should measure the same energy. So what we did in the experiment is we uh, measure the energy between electrons, which is bound in the trapped calcium ions, and look for energy shift between electrons oriented in different directions. And go on then, put us out of our misery. Was, was there any difference? Have we broken this, this rule that's been around for 100 years? No, so far, as, as well as we can say about our, the results of experiment, the Lorentz symmetry still holds. So far, so good. <laughs> and is there anything that makes us think that rule shouldn't stand? This um, symmetry is the foundation of what we call the standard model of modern particle physics. And we already know that the standard model doesn't explain everything we have seen in nature. For example, it doesn't explain dark matter, dark energy. And there are many candidates for this kind of beyond standard model theory. And one of the things that people are excited about is string theory. And some version of string theory actually predicts or suggests that Lorentz violation can be violated in a path which actually accessible in um, this kind of precision measurement. And so how sensitive is your experiment? What kind of levels are we talking about here? How fine are we going? In, in terms of number, we test Lorentz symmetry in a path in 10 to the 18. So that probably doesn't mean much if you're not in the business of precision measurement. But if you want to compare to what 
we know in in daily life it's it's like trying to determine if anyone has added a cup of water into the Caspian Sea. Wow! So these are really quite stringent tests. And what happens next? Then are you going to try and push it even further? So there are quite a few improvements that we can do based on the techniques in this paper, and hopefully within a few years we can hope to push it maybe ten thousand times. So that would be the hope. But it's just the beginning of this technique applied to this kind of. Lorentz symmetry testing. Hopefully, someday we will see some kind of violation. That was Taned Prutivarison, who's affiliated with Riken in Japan. He did the study while at the University of California, Berkeley. It's been four years since the Arab Spring reached Libya, sparking the revolution which toppled the Gaddafi regime. But that was only the start. Libya is still plagued by instability and civil war, and recent months have seen the violence escalating. Libya is hugely important to archaeologists. Stretching from the Mediterranean to the Sahara, it represents a hotspot for research into our deep and recent history, boasting 9,000-year-old rock art, Islamic tombs, and several UNESCO World Heritage sites. But fieldwork in Libya has ground to a halt. With the ongoing civil war making it impossible to work safely, and important heritage sites are under constant threat, Italian archaeologist Savino Di Lernia from the University of Rome, La Sapienza, has been working in Libya since 1990. In a comment piece this week, he urges the international community to come to the aid of Libyan archaeology. He had to make a dramatic escape with his students in 2011. Here he is. We were in the southwest of Libya, and we were doing our fieldwork. We heard about the situation via Arab uh, televisions that the situation was getting very, very dramatic. So we tried to go away, but the roads were closed. There were many revolutionary clashes already going on. We were able to get an Italian military aircraft, and we directly flew from. Seba to Rome, without stopping in Tripoli. The airport in Tripoli was already closed, and the situation was very dramatic. So, what would a researcher be risking to be in the field now? There is no a strong control on the country. The mobility within the country is dangerous. Personally, I work in the southwest of Libya, close to the Algerian border. And that area is totally out of the central government control. We can't get the authorization by our Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We can't get the authorization from our universities. At the moment, nobody can even imagine a possibility to go back again in Libya. What is it about Libya that makes it so special to archaeologists? It's an incredible place. It's、uh, just in the middle of many crucial major connections. It's just on the sea, in the Mediterranean Sea,、It、goes to the Sahara. Incredible, rich archaeological and historic heritage. And UNESCO recognized this. We have five UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Libya. So, what's the worry? Can't we just pick up where we left off with archaeology in Libya once the violence subsides? First of all, the lack of control. By the custodians of the Libyan heritage, the people, the, the the colleagues of the Department of Antiquities, they they have great difficulties to do their own work. They can't control the sites. They can't go in the field without running the risk to be 
kidnapped or something else. We record a long list of damages and uh, it's so sad to see many beautiful Islamic monuments destroyed in the last few months. It's really something we couldn't imagine four years ago at the beginning of the revolution. Why are these areas being damaged? It's not just because they're caught in the crossfire. Is it sort of ideological? Some cases, for example, the castle in Seba. Seba is a town down in the desert, 200 years old, and was hit by rockets just last year. Then we have, like in the very important necropolis of Serini in the north of Libya, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, there were damages related to the building of houses. And again, we have ideological damages. Many statues or many images in the country have been destroyed because they do not follow the Islamic view of some of the people who want to go ahead with this kind of radical view of Islam. The situation is totally out of control at the moment in Libya in this sense. So this is why I'm so concerned about the future for the cultural heritage of the country. So if it's still too dangerous to go out into the field, what do you propose as your short-term solution to keep Libyan archaeology alive? The most important thing, I believe, is to let Libyan scientists and colleagues to work again on the archaeological heritage. There is a huge quantity of archaeological materials and context that can be studied in the lab, can be digitalized, so there is much of work that can be done. We have to imagine an archaeology without fieldwork in the future for this country and possibly not only for Libya, but this could apply even to other countries. We have problems to let Libyans to come in Italy, for example, for getting visas because the situation, the international situation is becoming more and more difficult. We have problems to get fundings in order to do lab analysis on archaeological materials which are stored in Libya. And we have problems in moving these archaeological materials from Libya abroad. So if we have to do something, we have to review the way archaeological project can be funded in, uh, in Libya, and we have to review the way archaeologists from Libya can really interact with European and other countries. They do not apply for nothing at the moment. They are scared by the situation, so it's very important to start again to do something together, otherwise they also this piece of identity related to Libyan archaeology, Libyan cultural heritage, could be lost. This is my personal concern. Do you think that the situation will ever go back to normal in Libya? Do you think that archaeological fieldwork will go back to normal? To be honest, I'm not very optimistic because the country is devastated now by four years of a civil war and really nobody can see an end. That was Savino di Lernia. Now it's news time and US news editor Matt Crenson joins me on the line from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Matt. Now, um, Philae, the little probe, little lander that everyone will remember was dropped off by Rosetta onto the comet 67P, is lost, isn't it? Yes, it is. It was lost on arrival uh, in November. Um, 
And although uh, the researchers know roughly where it is, uh, they'd like to be able to pinpoint its location and haven't been able to do that yet. So it was a pretty kind of low-tech reason its batteries ran out, which, you know, happens to us all. Um, Is anyone going to, to look for it? Well, they can't decide. Um, There's a possibility of making a last attempt uh, to find it. Um, Philae is currently um, in a spot about 20 meters wide by 200 meters long, they know. And um, it would be possible to take the orbiter, Rosetta, uh, from its current 20-kilometer orbit down to about 6 kilometers and swoop it over this area to look for Philae. Um, But that would um, use fuel which is in limited supply, and it would uh, mean that later on, uh, Rosetta couldn't do a similar maneuver to take a really beautiful shot of the comet in full sunlight. And are there scientific reasons for looking for the Philae lander, or is it mostly just uh, sentimental? No, there are actual scientific reasons. It has collected some data and sent it back, and uh, understanding those data and what they mean rely on knowing exactly where it's sitting on the comet's surface. And of course, the decision is made a bit more difficult by the fact that there's also some great science that Rosetta could continue to do uh, if it wasn't burdened with looking for Philae. Well, it's it, mostly the, the trade-off is this other uh, observation of the comet. Um, in, in full sunlight, without shadow, uh, from, a, from a close range, um, they'd get a really great Um, possibly the best ever look at at a comet. And there has, of course, been quite a lot of science pouring out of the mission so far, um, which the story goes into. Could you give us a a brief uh, recap? Well, it's it's gotten a really good look at the comet, so uh, researchers have a good idea of what its surface is like and what it's made of. It's got these little pits on it that seem to have vented gas as it's approached the sun, and then it's got these uh, round things on it that uh, they've, they're calling dinosaur eggs. And so they've, they've mapped the surface and uh, divided it into these sort of sections that they've named after Egyptian uh, gods. I have to say the whole thing reminds me a bit of uh, the film Interstellar, where the crew has to make a decision on which exoplanets it's going to go and visit because it doesn't have enough fuel to go to them all. It's a typical problem in, uh, in space exploration. And the thing that you want to send out into outer space, you've got to get past Earth's gravity. And uh, so you always have a limited amount of payload, and that includes fuel. Do we know when ESA is going to make a decision on whether to look for Philae or not? We don't exactly. Um, They are turning it over right now, and uh, they have to decide soon, obviously, but um, there's no uh, stated time. Okay. Hanging in the balance there for poor little Philae. It's really hard not to anthropomorphize that little space lander. Now, Matt, we're going to move on to the second story um, that you've brought for us. Obama gave his State of the Union address last week, and of course, science got a mention in the form of climate change. Here's what he had to say about it briefly. Over the past six years... We've done more than ever to to combat climate change from the way we produce energy to the way we use it. That's why we've set aside more public lands and waters than any administration in history. And that's why I will not let this Congress endanger the health of our children by turning back the clock on our efforts. I am determined to make sure that American leadership drives international action. And the news story this week that's by our reporter Jeff Tollefson looks at what Obama has achieved vis-a-vis climate change in the last uh, six years of his, um, of his office. Yeah, so he, Obama has had a, an uphill battle on climate change uh, all along. He came into office promising to 
do something significant about it. Um, and didn't have any success in his first term passing legislation to reduce greenhouse gases emitted by the U.S. Um, now he's he's halfway through his second term. He's only got two years left in office. And um, in the November elections, both houses of Congress turned uh, Republican. So he's got some stiff opposition there. Um, and it's unlikely that he's going to get any legislation passed. So as you mentioned, you know, the Republican Senate especially is making it quite difficult for him to get legislation through. What else can he do? What realistically is in his grasp? There's quite a bit he can do in writing regulations and making international agreements. Um, presidents have pretty broad authority in those areas. So the Environmental Protection Agency is working on some regulations that would affect uh, power plants. Um, one of the biggest sources of carbon dioxide in the U.S. is coal-burning power plants, and uh, these regulations would clamp down on those emissions and have a pretty um, significant effect. He's also um, going to issue some regulations on methane production in oil and gas exploration, and those are um, those are also a pretty significant source. Methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And uh, perhaps most uh, Notable, he made an agreement with China in November um, to uh, hit some long-term goals in um, reducing greenhouse gases. The U.S. has committed to reduce its emissions by about 26 to 28 percent by the year 2025, and China has agreed to stabilize its emissions by 2030. Yeah, so it, I mean, it's not looking like a bad legacy necessarily. I mean, he's only halfway through his second term, but are people optimistic about what he might leave behind him in terms of climate? Well, it's mixed. I mean, he, he could certainly do more with cooperation uh, from Congress, um, but he will be able to make some headway toward meeting the commitments that the U.S. made before the China deal. Um, and, you know, with some further progress, the the commitments to the to the China deal might be made as well. Just out of interest, uh, from someone who's reasonably naive about the U.S. political system, do presidents get kind of a limited number of these, you know, bonus cards that they can just sort of be like, right, I'm doing that, I'm doing that? They don't, in fact. And um, presidents have, of late, uh, in the last few decades, been using these sorts of executive orders more and more. You know, you hear about gridlock in Washington. And... Um, this is a way to, to get around some of that and, uh, and to get what you want. And so presidents in both parties have been using these kinds of actions uh, increasingly in recent years. Matt, thank you. And if you'd like to read those stories in full, then as ever, nature.com slash news is the place to be. We've just released the latest episode of Backchat, bringing you the stories behind the stories in science this month. Here, nature reporters chat about objects lost in space and the experiments that will make you think, why didn't I think of that? Find that on iTunes or on the podcast page, nature.com slash nature slash podcast, or follow us on Twitter at Nature Podcast. We'll be back next week with something that's light and strong and a story that will make the earth move. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh. Nature.